guest today is an old friend, Ben Heller, and I'm particularly delighted, Mark and I are both delighted, that we got Ben to agree to come on our podcast, in part because Ben is a truly unique individual in that he is able to traverse the vastly different spaces of academia, policymaking, and market participation in a truly seamless fashion. First time I met Ben, which was in the context of trying to understand market resistance to collective action clauses. I think the first time was uh, in 2003 or 2004, and I was convinced that this guy was not going to last very long in a fund because he was a real academic. Like He just thought about things that people in the markets don't have time to think about. But Ben not only graciously answered our questions, but continued to be a very successful market participant and over the years has continued to graciously share his insights with those of us who need to learn from them. So today is yet another such opportunities, except that I'm delighted we get to share Ben's insights with others and especially our students. So welcome to our podcast, Ben. Well, thanks for having me on. And And I think, you know, sad thing is that I may have been a more successful market participant had I not been so involved in the uh, academic and policy side of things. And I'm not sure how much the academic and policy side of things has benefited from that, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. You can tell me after it's over, after the podcast is over. Well, I know we've benefited greatly because some of the most important innovations in our lifetimes in the sovereign debt space Uh, have had you as a key participant. So, but that's partly why uh, we wanted to have you on at this moment. Ben, for those who don't know, had a recent proposal about state contingent instruments. These are instruments that we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times before, uh, once with uh, Joyce Chang and Lee Bukite and Jeremy Zettelmeyer on another occasion, uh, with Yanis Manuelides, and then a yet another occasion about value recovery instruments with Mark Stumpf. Now, Ben has a proposal, love titled beautifully, the Bendy Bonds Proposal. And this proposal is one of the rare ones that has actually gotten some interest from folks in the market. And I'm gonna let Ben, if he's willing, to first explain to us what his proposal is, but then I'd also like to ask why he thinks he was able to get traction on it when so many others have not. I, in fact, sort of when academics talk about cool topics to work on, and if you're in the sovereign debt space, you often talk about Uh, contingent instruments, because they seem to make sense from an economic point of view, but there's a puzzle that nobody in the market actually likes them. And then you often think, oh, yeah, it sounds like a cool topic, but, you know, there's, this is just such a large graveyard of other people who have worked on it and failed, including Nobel laureates. So Ben seems to be on his way to succeeding. And so why, Ben, what did you do? What is the proposal? And 
What did you do to get people interested? Well, clearly the answer to the second question is my charm and good looks. But well, but uh, uh, but let me let me give you the the uh, the the, the, uh, the proposal first. Uh, I mean, I've I've traded contingent instruments for for a long time. I've traded value recovery rights, you know, under the old Brady bonds. So it was something that I've always been familiar with. And you know, I don't I haven't just traded a emerging market sovereign debt in my career. I've traded corporate debt as well. And um, it seemed to me that there were um, in the corporate space uh, instruments that were clearly still fixed income instruments. I think when you talk about value recovery rights and GDP warrants, you're getting into uh, an area that where it's not really a fixed income instrument anymore. Um, uh, but the, in, in the corporate space, there are some fixed income instruments where payment terms uh, are slightly flexible. Um, and uh, the reason that we see this uh, in the corporate context is it's in uh, the cases of issuers where uh, an actual default or bankruptcy would be very, very costly, like in the in the case of financials is probably one of the best examples or where payment capacity is very uncertain. So sometimes in highly leveraged buyouts or in rest corporate restructurings, companies coming out of uh, distress where there's some uncertainty as to when you know, rate normal uh, positive cash flow will be restored. Um, and so in both of those uh, circumstances, you're dealing with situations where uh, if, if you get it wrong, if you, if you establish uh, a fixed calendar of cash flows that cannot be moved uh, short of a bankruptcy or restructuring, um, that uh, this is going to be potentially, uh, uh, it's going to be potentially costly. Um, and uh, we thought, okay, well, why, why don't we, would, wouldn't we use this in the sovereign context? And the specific structures are things like um, the callable step-up bond. So this is very common uh, in the financials context. You have a bond and you call it a 10-year bond. But what happens at 10 years is that the bond is callable. If the bond isn't called, the interest rate steps up. So the uh, issuer essentially has a very strong incentive to call the bond. Number one, uh, because if they don't, the interest rate is going up. So if they're in, in decent shape, uh, the financially optimal decision is to call the bond and just issue uh, a new bond uh, if, if they need to, to, to pay it off because uh, they'll be able to do that at a lower rate than the step-up rate. And also the reputational aspect of it. It's simply accepted uh, in, in the financials world that unless the bank is in you know, distress, uh, it's gonna call the bond. Um, in addition, the, the, there's a similar structure for, for COCO, so-called COCOs, contingent converts, uh, which is a, a structure that was introduced for financials. Um, in the wake of the great financial crisis. Um, and, and the idea is that uh, under most circumstances, you, the, the, the bond has a, a maturity uh, that, you know, it's 10 years or whatever, but there are circumstances under which uh, that maturity uh, is effectively ex extended. Um, uh, another possibility is, or, or that we looked at are bonds. Um, uh, that are like called a uh, pick or pick toggle bonds. This is something that comes more from the, uh, the you know, leverage finance world um, uh, where there are circumstances under which uh, coupons can be uh, switched off, toggled or deferred, um, sometimes simply at the discretion uh, of the issuer and other times uh, based on um, certain uh, uh, criteria, uh, performance criteria or performance triggers um, being blown through. 
And um, the, in the corporate context, these are very well accepted instruments. Um, you know, if you go on Bloomberg and you want to try and price uh, a, a step up convert, I mean, a, a, a call step up, there, there's, a, there's a valuation screen for that. There are agreed, uh, you know, metrics for spread uh, for how you deal with the option. And uh, similar with, you know, pictogals, people are very comfortable uh, with those structures. And um, it's uh, considered, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, with a bond that happens to have those uh, features. We know how to value them. And uh, there is a tremendous benefit in that you avoid uh, a situation where some kind of uh, transient issue, a liquidity issue or market access issue that might go away fairly quickly uh, does not turn into uh, an actual restructuring or default that has tremendous costs, deadweight losses uh, to both the uh, the debtor uh, and the creditor. And um, to us, the analogy with uh, financials was a really good analogy because uh, a default of a financial you know, is, is basically like an existential threat <laughs> to a financial and has huge spillover effects and contagion effects. And it's just not really conducive to uh, uh, restructuring in the way an ordinary corporate might be, or to bankruptcy in the way an ordinary corporate might be. And sovereigns are the same way for different reasons. We don't have access to a bankruptcy regime and restructurings are necessarily messy and the collateral effects can be really dire. So we thought, well, this is a good analogy. Why not try something similar uh, for the sovereign context? Well, then it, it sounds in some ways like the, so I, I'm, I'm really interested in the question of why this proposal seems so much more palatable than some of the, the other proposals that we've seen for GDP-linked bonds in general uh, and so forth. And, and part of what I hear you saying is a really simple story about how there is um, greater familiarity with an ease of pricing for these instruments. Is that, do you think that is the core of the explanation for why these, um, uh, these other ideas like GDP linked bonds have not gotten more, more traction and more popular or is there more to it than that? No, short answer. I think that's the biggest thing. And let me, and let me, I, let me expand on that, that answer uh, with, you know, with a story. So I've been involved in a lot of restructurings and, you know, Argentina was, was one, the latest Argentina restructuring I was involved in. And we proposed uh, to, to, to Argentina, the idea that we could bridge some of the valuation gap, uh, you know, between creditors uh, and, and Argentina with a state contingent instrument, a GDP linked instrument or an export linked instrument. And Argentina was actually receptive to that idea. I mean, there was some dispute about whether it would be GDP link, and obviously they've had some issues with their earlier iteration of, of GDP warrants, or whether it would be export link. But the hard objection was not an objection from the side of the debtor. It was an objection from the, from a, a faction within the creditor community. It was real money creditors who said, we, we will rebel uh, if this is part of the restructuring. And I was really surprised. I, 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 you know, what's, what's the deal? Why, why won't you, why is this a problem for you? And they said, we cannot hold these. These are not fixed income instruments. They're not in the index. So many, to take a step back, many real money investors, they 
track uh, an index of uh, emerging market debt and their eligibility criteria for that index. And uh, instruments like GDP warrants cannot go in that index. So they say, we can't hold this. Or they even their mandates say, we can only hold fixed income instruments. So we can't hold this. And if this is part of the restructuring, I'm going to have to sell it on day one, probably at a price far below its intrinsic value, to you, Mr. Hedge Fund, or whoever's going to buy it. And we, we, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to put any value uh, in, in these. Obviously, the debtor's going to put a value in them. So we, we, we rebel against the idea that uh, GDP linkers or export linkers should be part of the restructuring. So Ben, is, is, this, is this why we often see sort of innovations in sovereign products like the, the types of warrants that were issued after the Greek restructuring? And I think some other restructurings have had similar Bosnia. You, well, Bosnia was an old one, but Ukraine probably is the, the, yeah. is the successful example. And we see them only in the restructuring context and you don't really see people just sort of, you don't see some investment bank saying, all right, here, here's a new product that- Oh, I've tried it. Will. I've tried it. I've tried it. I, when, when Argentina did it for the first time, our view was, look, this, it's not a fixed income. Even back then we understood it's not a fixed income instrument, right? However, there is a lot of value in my view to the idea of completing markets by creating instruments linked to important variables like GDP. Right. I think that there is uh, uh, there's a case to be made for making an investment in the GDP of a country. And there's a case to be made that a country raising capital against its GDP makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, it goes back to there's a book that I think more people should read. It's a great book by Michael Pettis. I don't know if you know Michael, but he was in research at Bear Stearns and now he's an academic in China, works more on China issues than sovereign debt issues. But years ago, he was uh, in in research of Bear Stearns, and the book's called The Volatility Machine. And he said, you know, the purpose of the liability structure of a sovereign should be to dampen volatility. And at the time, he was sort of pushing for the idea of de-dollarizing uh, sovereign liabilities. But he also talked about state contingent instruments, and it makes a lot of sense for a sovereign to, to raise money with GDP warrants, right? It's, it's very linked to their capacity uh, to pay. So when our Argentina did the first GDP warrants in 2005, which really nobody asked for, that restructuring was a fairly take it or leave it affair. Um, so th that wasn't an idea that really came from creditors. The creditors had much of a say in. But when it came out, we said, okay, look, this, it's not a fixed income instrument and it's gonna have to be a different asset class. But for it to be an asset class that's investable, you can't have just one country's GDP warrant, right? You need to be able to have a portfolio. You need to be able to diversify. So if this is gonna work, we need to get some other countries to issue them. And we did approach, one other country and advanced a little, we approached more than one other country, but we advanced a little bit with one other country to try and issue one for cash. And it's a country that we just happen to have a good relationship with. And we advanced a little bit with them, but ultimately uh, what we got into this whole first mover issue where they said, well, yeah, this would be interesting to us, but probably the price at which we could issue it is, is really unattractive. And it's true, like they would be opening, helping to open up this market but they would be bearing all the cost. And the externality is, is going to be captured by every subsequent country that can issue uh, this instrument. So nobody wants to go first. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's why it comes out of restructurings. However, when you look at the restructurings that it, where it happens, it's not restructurings where real money dominates. It tends to be restructurings where there's a big, uh, 
the hedge fund contingent, uh, you know, in, in the debt stack, and they uh, and 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 hedge funds are free to hold these things. So in Ukraine, you know, the, the people who really pushed for that were were more hedge funds than real money. So it's not every restructuring even uh, where where these warrants are going to be acceptable. So we just never really could crack that first mover. Uh, that, that first member question, because it's true. I mean, if you look at a, a great example of this of an asset class, it's sort of has, a, it makes perfect sense for the issuers and uh, makes a lot of sense for buyers too. But there was this first mover problem was catastrophe bonds. For a long time, catastrophe bonds traded very, very cheap uh, to actuarial value. But once it became, once enough of them were out there on enough different uh, events, uh, they traded a lot closer to their actuarial value because it was an asset class. And you know, if there were, like I said, if there were 20 countries that had GDP warrants I, and, and there was an interest, I would go out and raise a fund that was a GDP warrant fund, right? It's going to, it will become an asset class if there are enough of them that you could create a product that invests in them. But if it's just Argentina and Ukraine that have them, that's not going to work. And by the way, if they're designed in ways where they're analytically intractable, which was true of the, of, of the Argentina one. Um, uh, uh, and, and actually even the Boston one, and there was a Bulgaria VRR that was, uh, was uh, GDP linked in the old Brady deals. So these, they, they, they didn't work the same way. It wasn't like a standard format. And the formats that, you know, that they did come out in, you couldn't create a model where there's an agreed valuation metric. It, it's not gonna work uh, as, as a product for people. So, so Ben, there's a, I mean, there's a lot in there, um, including the value potentially of standardization and the, the uh, sort of benefits in terms of the ability to price these instruments. But what lessons can we take away? I, I mean, in part, I'm a little bit depressed by what you're saying in the sense that it doesn't seem like we have that many models, at least models in the sovereign debt context for the relatively widespread adoption of, of new financial terms. You know, you certainly um, maybe can draw lessons from the widespread adoption of CACs but you know, maybe at the end of the day, people don't really give a damn about legal terms, and that makes them easier. Like, like what, what do you think can prompt the relatively widespread adoption of something like the Bendy bond? Like, what's well, the, the lesson? The for bonds, I, think the, the, I think the first thing is don't be too ambitious, right? So we we we're trying to design something that still looks like a bond, and uh, the important thing, what's what's going to give you the take up? I think the first thing uh, is to recognize. That you have a big, um, uh, that, that a large fraction of the money that's invested in uh, emerging market sovereign debt is this index following money. And uh, the, the investors, the most important thing for them is, is the bond in the index. And you have to make sure that these bonds are index eligible. Now, I think there's just no way for an index that's supposedly a, an EM fixed income index to have things like GDP warrants, particularly ones with very eccentric terms, in the index. But there have been call, there have been puttable bonds and callable bonds uh, in these indices before, um, and uh, certainly in the corporate in, in indices and the financials indices, there are step up callables and there are pictoggles. So there's no reason why the bendy bonds couldn't be in the index. And once they're in the index, you have a natural buyer base for them. So that's why we say start with start modestly, start with uh, changes that are going to leave you with a bond that is still eligible to be in the index. So Ben, before we go to our break, I want to ask you about sort of one other innovation that came to mind, although maybe you would tell me that it's not really a, in an, in, 
even an innovation. It's uh, the, the redemption feature in Latin American sovereign bonds that have uh, these make whole provisions. So I had been looking at them and uh, looking at how they evolved and they seem to have come first uh, into a Canadian corporate bond. Uh, and then from the Canadian corporate bond market, they transitioned uh, to the US corporate bond market. I think the high yield market first and then Mexico and Brazil. Uh, began using it uh, mostly in deals that were led by Sullivan and Cromwell. They seemed to correlate. And then they sort of smoothly transitioned into uh, almost all of the Latin American uh, debt issuances. And you're bringing up Argentina reminded me that there was this make-hold provision. There was a century, yeah. Yeah, in the century bond. I think that's copy-pasta, to be honest. Like, there, there's just... The idea there, I think, is there sometimes there can be circumstances where, for legal reasons, um, the, you know, the, the country needs to get rid of the bond, right? There, the, and, and you'd see this sometimes in in, in situations where you know there could be a um, there's a ta in corporate context where there's like a tax gross up, but if the tax gross up goes away, the issuer wants the right to take the bond out because they don't want to be paying the tax gross up, but you don't want a situation where uh, that it's done pretextually. And so the way to bridge that gap is you'd say, okay, well, yeah, you can call this thing, but you can't call it par. We'll come up with a, a make whole price. And we just correlate that to, you know, where treasuries are trading plus 50 basis points or 25 basis points, whatever the spread is, so very low spread. Um, so that uh, there's just really not much of a foreseeable circumstance in which somebody who's lent to Brazil or Argentina or, or, or an emerging markets uh, 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 issuer that they wouldn't be happy to sell that bond at treasuries plus 25 or treasuries plus 50. So I, so I think that, that people tended to consider those make holes, that uh, at least most creditors have, have tended to consider those make holes as an economic nullity, right? There's just no circumstance under which they would be upset to be called at treasuries plus 50 basis points. Now I know that there was this question of like that it could cause some problems <laughs> if you got to litigation, um, and that was a big surprise to people, but since that didn't wind up being, um, it, it didn't become relevant in Argentina, other than in some of the things maybe that you wrote about or other academics wrote about, it, it didn't actually become operative. Um, the, uh, some of the anxiety that people felt when they read that stuff, it, it dissipated because, you know, you know the, the dogs barked, the caravan moved on, and, and you know, people will be afraid of it the next, maybe the next time it comes up. But until then, uh, it's, it's sort of been forgotten. Yeah. So it, it was, it was surprising to me that, I mean, some investors had asked me because I had written about a corporate case where this kind of make whole provision had resulted in a windfall to the investors. Uh, but, and, and then I did get requests because clearly people familiar with the corporate context were wondering, oh, if we hold the 100-year bond, can we get a, a, an additional premium? But, but they must not have uh, pushed on that. And my sense from hypothetical conversations with uh, folks in Argentina is they were aware of this issue too and were dreading uh, the phone call where they were asked to pay more on that particular bond. Because yeah, was... you know, I think there was, maybe they were lucky in the sense that 
the most aggressive creditors were not were, were certainly not people who are going to buy a hundred year bond in Argentina. You know what I'm saying? Like that 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 the most aggressive creditors clustered in the older bonds with the older uh, covenant package. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. That that's yeah. fascinating. That that yeah. is part of the explanation. Because I was wondering too. Because my you know my sense is that. Uh, there are uh, investors out there who, if they can get, you know, an extra 10 cents on the dollar or five cents. Oh, they or, take a shot, right? They, yeah, they say, they oh, yeah, I read an article that said that, you know, I could claim, you know, 150 for this. So I'm at least going to take a shot. But the thing is that the, uh, you had very, you didn't have too many investors in the, in, in the Argentina case where they were just in one bond. If they were just in one bond, it was in one of the bonds with the older covenant package. Whereas in the newer bonds, so the mock, I, I, I try to, I, I try very hard to establish this idea of calling them Kirchner bonos and Macri bonos because I wanted the Kirchner, I wanted to like associate one set of bonds with the current administration and one with the previous administration, which might tell you something about what our position was. But um, uh, so that's, those are the terms that I use. But the, the um, most of the holders of Macri bonos tended to be more real money accounts who own a lot of different uh, bonds on that curve. And so they didn't necessarily uh, feel like there was much to be gained by trying to assert a higher claim for the century bonds relative to the other bonds because they own all. Well, let's take a short break. And then um, when we come back, we can pick up with this and maybe uh, talk a little bit about what uh, to expect over the next couple of years. So, Ben, can I start us off the, the second part with uh, a question about the recent drama about the Argentine restructuring and the Pac-Man and the redesignation and um, all of these sort of fun terms that entered into people's vocabularies relatively recently. So um, can I, I, I think we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast already, and, and I suspect many listeners have sort of followed along. I'm wondering if I can just get your reaction to that story, the, um, or to that, that, um, entire episode and maybe some commentary on where we are with the ICMA CACs. Um, are these a, like a, a useful innovation? Are, are, are there serious design flaws here that Argentina was trying to sort of fix? What was the, the backstory? Oh there? boy, this will, uh, how much time do you have? The, uh, let, let me start by saying that I rebut in the strongest terms the idea that the motivation of Argentina and its lawyers in uh, doing the re in, in attempting this redesignation scheme was to fix some kind of a flaw in the documents. I don't think that has anything to do with it at all. I think it was an attempt to uh, add a very small amount, as it turns out, of coercion uh, to the deal. Of course, it was unnecessary, honestly, because at that point, I think that you know, we had a deal that had a lot of support. And uh, you know, with respect to the Pac-Man strategy, I mean, they never that wasn't. I don't think ever explicitly threatened. It was sort of floating around out there. But I also, you know, rebut the idea that that's to fix a, a bug. What, what bothers me, you know, I, you know, Mark, as you know, I was very involved in writing those. Indeed. You know, right. And, and uniformly applicable. That was my baby. Um, and uh, I, I, I think they're, I think those, the, the cat, the 2.0 cats are a really important innovation, but I think that we risk we risk the viability of it if we allow things like redesignation and Pac-Man to happen. And, and, and let me go back a little bit to the quote unquote legislative history. When these were being drafted, 
redesignation was something that I pointed out was problematic. And Pac-Man, not exactly the Pac-Man strategy, but similar things, I pointed out, that's problematic. And I said, why don't we put in language? And, and then there's a third thing, what Ecuador did, which we could talk about later, where if you, you know, if you vote yes, you get a choice of instrument that you get out of the restructuring, but if you vote no, you don't get a choice and it's decided for you. And, and all these things I said, we need to put in language to prevent this stuff because the trade that's being offered to the market is this. I mean, the, the market is conceding to the issuer a tremendous power to amend economic terms, reserve terms, reserve matters across series. It's a big, that's a big innovation, a big, it's a big hammer. But what we get in exchange is a cabining or a, a, a restriction in how that powerful tool can be used. That is saying, well, it can only be for uniform treatment or it can only be, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, for, um, for, uh, for uh, under certain circumstances and there can only be certain, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, you, you, can, you know, we have problems with like, who's gonna vote? Can, uh, can the central bank vote? Can other instrumentalities, we, we, we're gonna restrict all that stuff. And I said, okay, look, we need to also fix these other ambiguities. And the response I got was, well, it's, we can't put everything into the document. It becomes too complicated, too cumbersome. And, and no, nobody's ever gonna use these schemes. And literally the first time out of the gate, they get used. And I think the, the problem is, is this, when creditors look at, at, this, at, at, these, at this document, we're not lawyers for the most part. We look at it as sort of the way you might regard the back of a, of a manual, of a, of a piece of electronics you, you buy, the troubleshooting page. Right. That, for me, that's goes, something you immediately throw away. Is that what you're trying to tell us? Yeah. Well, no, no. That, that we go to that. There's a problem. You go. This is gives you some sketch of like how it's going to work if we run into problems. It's uh, and you know maybe it's not exhaustive, but it's it's guidelines. And I get the feeling that the way, no offense to you guys, that maybe you look at it, and certainly that the debtors bar looks at it. They look at it the way Harry Houdini might have looked at a box full of water wrapped in chains, <laughs> and. <laughs> And that's a problem, right? Because uh, if, if our whole trade is where we're gonna put sort of certain bankruptcy norms into the contract, then we can't have a situation where everything that is not forbidden to the debtor is permitted. Like that's just not gonna work. Uh, that's not gonna work for creditors. Uh, I think it's gonna engender a lot of bad blood. And uh, it, it's gonna lead to a situation where there'll be a lot of resistance to any further uh, innovations in, in contract terms. So I think we're lucky that that redesignation in the case of Argentina turned out to be kind of unimportant because the, the deal was, was popular and, and, and pretty well accepted. Um, and uh, we're lucky that it didn't come to the point where the Pac-Man strategy was tried. But, but uh, I don't think any creditor looking at the history of, of, the, of how the CACs came about and looking at the plain language would think that it was like a sensible outcome, that Pac-Man was a sensible outcome. Um, and it's annoying to me, having been involved already and having pointed those things out, to be told, no, 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 you don't, that, it's, it's too verbose, you can't put all that into the contract. And then have people say to me, well, these are contracts and contracts will be read. That, that, that feels to me was very disingenuous and makes me, uh, even I who was involved in, in uh, you know, the, the, this ECMA effort, a little bit mistrustful uh, about, uh, you know, further efforts in that direction. So Ben, um, 
This is wonderful. And I think that researchers about contract innovation are going to be listening to this part of the podcast for years to come. Certainly, I'm going to listen to it again and again, because it's sort of, once again, you're able to combine sort of your unique understanding of these multiple worlds. But I want to ask more about a couple of things that you mentioned, Uh, two in particular, uh, I think maybe in an earlier conversation we'd had. One is, um, but it relates to your answer to Mark's question. One is my sense of uh, looking at the market prices for the Argentine bonds right now is that there is still even today, months after the restructuring, a pricing differential, a fairly significant one between uh, bonds that have the old term sort of uh, first generation or second generation CACs and the bonds that have uh, the ICMA 2014 terms, um, or I, mean, I guess you you talked about them as Kirchner and Macri bonds. Um, but as I see it, there's, the market seems to be in, uh, pricing a differential between bonds vulnerable to uh, Pac-Man redesignation slash other Argentine shenanigans versus those that are not. And I, I'm curious as to your view on this pricing differential, because for years, Academics have been doing studies saying, you know, it doesn't matter what contract term you have, CACs, no CACs, um, the market doesn't really price these differentials. And yet here for Argentina, these are identical bonds that you can compare and you see this pricing differential. So I'm wondering, maybe I'm just not running the right controls, maybe- No, 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 it, it, there's a big price difference and it's referred to. I mean, you, when people send pricing around, they, 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 they price the- uh, old the old bond, the uh, old uh, uh, covenant package bonds versus the new covenant package bonds. Everyone's aware of, of that difference. Um, you know, nobody nobody cares about the contractual terms until you get close to default. That's just the way it works. And the studies that try to look at the overall universe of bonds to tease out uh, a valuation premium or discount related to contract terms fall apart because they're looking at some bonds where the cumulative probability of default is really low. And when the cumulative probability of default is low based on pricing, people don't even read the contracts. They're not even aware. And it's interesting in Argentina, when we went into distress, there's a, there was a further confound, which you were, which you referred to before, which is that all the bonds that were under the old covenant package were issued under the Kirchner administration. They came out of the restructuring that was under the Kirchner administration. And uh, all of the bonds under the ICMA, with the ICMA covenant package uh, were issued under the Macri administration. So there was a political dimension to, uh, there was a question of, was there political seniority? And people think back maybe to Ecuador and the Correa administration defaulted on bond, on a bunch of bonds, but not the ones that they had issued. Um, and uh, there was a thought, okay, well, maybe these old bonds are superior, but mainly because they were Kirchner bonds, not because of the covenant package. Um, but once we got into the restructuring and people started to think about what might happen, what your next step might be if you could not come to an agreement uh, with Argentina, uh, people started to delve into credit, started to delve into 
uh, what their legal recourse might be, I think there was a realization, particularly on the part of those people who own the mockery bonds, <laughs> that they were in a more vulnerable uh, position. Um, and, or at the very least, they would have to build a much broader coalition to resist Argentina than the holders of, of, of the Kirchner bonds. And the political dimension of it sort of faded away and people started to realize that the covenants made a difference. And then I think there was a revealed preference. Um, there, was a, there was an issue of revealed preference, which is that in the restructuring negotiations, some of the biggest creditors who held the old bonds said, it is uh, non-negotiable for us. We will not give up our old covenant package in the restructuring. We'll make concessions in economic terms, but we're not going to be lumped. In. We're not going to uh, allow issuance under the new uh, uh, under the new ICMA terms. So uh, that was a pretty strong message. Now it might be incorrect, right? But, but but it was a pretty strong message. You had some savvy investors saying, "I'm not going to give this thing up." Seeing that, I think caused the market as a whole to ascribe some value uh, to the old covenant package. So that was sort of like the revealed preference argument. Now, yeah, it's a very, uh, there's, there's a very big valuation difference, but you have to also appreciate these Argentine uh, bonds, uh, they're trading, you know, in the 30 cents in the dollar range. So they're still very close to, I mean, they, they came out of default, but they're still kind of close to default in a way, right? So you, this is, you are in a pricing zone where contractual terms are, go, are, are going to be priced. Well, that is actually a good segue maybe into a broader question about the what you think we should be expecting over the next couple of years. I mean, I think a lot of people, probably including me and Me Too, I think had, had sort of been expecting um, more defaults or at least more real um, distress uh, for a wider range of sovereigns than we've seen. And, and it may just be that the other shoe hasn't yet dropped, or maybe we're wrong and easy financing conditions are going to stick around for forever. But um, I'd like to get a sense of what you think we should be expecting in emerging markets uh, over the next year or two. Well, you know, I, I would say I, I've been surprised, a little bit surprised as well. Although I think it's fair, we should point out, we've had Argentina default, we've had Ecuador default, we've had Lebanon, we've had Zambia. Some of those were going to default whether there was a pandemic or not. I mean, Lebanon, mm -hmm. I, I, when I started in this industry in 1997, my boss had me said, you know, go take a look at Lebanon. I don't know how this uh, is, how they're going to continue to survive looking at these numbers. So that one was the world's slowest motion Ponzi scheme and it was going to blow up, you know, pandemic or no pandemic. And Zambia probably was, it was going to blow up pandemic or no pandemic. And Argentina and Ecuador got into distress you know, before the pandemic. Before, yeah. Obviously, that it intensified things. But then you get Suriname uh, is another one, and, and there there are a few more uh, that uh, I think you know you're 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 probably going to see them uh, default this year. So it's not like there's been nothing. But I agree with you that it's been fewer than uh, than I might have thought. Um, and uh, you know, part of that is uh, that there has been some you know there's been official sector support. Right, related to you know, various pandemic facilities um, from the official sector, uh, which I think has helped. I think also there's been, you know, most of the time when you see a country get into distress, it, 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 it's a combination of the fiscal imbalance of payments at the same time. And I think you've just seen a massive swing in current accounts across uh, the emerging markets. And they've swung into surplus just because of just compression of demand due to the pandemic. And so 
you have a number of countries that you never would have expected could do quasi QE, being able to do that is because the current account swung so much and there, uh, there are resources available. Um, and when that ends, then I think you might start to see more situations uh, of, uh, of distress. Um, and I think also just the, uh, all of the uh, uh, monetary accommodation in the developed world means that there's a reach for yield. And so countries have been able to issue external debt as well at rates that, you, you know, that, that we might have considered surprising uh, ex ante. And if we do uh, see some reversal of that accommodation, you know, that the uh, ease of issuing external debt may go down the same way that the ease of issuing local debt with the, with the current account surplus. Uh, may go down. So yeah, it, 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 it may be that ironically, the distress gets worse as the global economy gets better, as we get back to normality. I'm not sure your tone seemed very calm and maybe even optimistic, but your words did not give me a reason for optimism regarding the emerging markets and poorer country segment of the market. Am, am I correct that what you are telling us is that there's a pretty good chance that uh, while the Western world recovers, uh, the emerging markets and places like Brazil that have just really done a terrible job with the uh, pandemic, they're going to be in trouble as uh, yeah, I don't want to single anybody. I don't want to single any any country out by na by name, but certainly I think there are a lot of countries that, if you ask savvy emerging markets investors, should they really have been able to issue in the in, in the size that they were able to issue in the external debt markets, some of the very some of the poorer countries, uh, the answer would be no. That really, they probably shouldn't have it, and those may run into trouble. The, uh, the big, you know, when we talk about the Brazils of the world, that's maybe a little bit of a different story. But yeah, you have a tier of countries that were poor countries that issued a lot in the external market and accumulated debt fairly quickly. Yeah, I think they could they could easily be in trouble. But I don't see it as those countries aren't really systemic. Um, and, uh, and 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 honestly, I think it's harder for uh, an emerging markets country to be systemic for the emerging markets investing world these days than it used to be because we have more, uh, you know, indexed investors, you have more, um, uh, you have fewer tourists, I think, in, in the asset class, it's less dependent on hedge funds or, or leveraged investors. And so it's, it's harder to create uh, for one country to create losses that then lead to a deleveraging spiral and all the country's uh, credit spreads blowing out. So I think it may be that uh, yeah, there are more some of these countries that that borrow that were lent to improvidently or borrowed improvidently uh, wind up having to restructure. But I don't see it as uh, as a, an existential threat so, so uh, to ben, the asset class. But but to, wait, but to get to your question about like optimistic or pessimistic, one of the things that's frustrating to me and it's sad to me that it's like a regret I have over my career, having done this for almost twenty five years, is that you look at the debt metrics of most of the countries that I invested, they've gotten worse. They've steadily gotten worse for 25 <laughs> years, right? That, you know, we talk about no Ponzi game conditions, but gosh, I mean, you know, like Brazil, you mentioned Brazil, right? Now the gross debt to GDP approaching 90%. It's just gotten worse and worse. There have been little periods where it improves a little bit, but the trend has been, been horrendous. On the other hand, in the developed world, the trend has been horrendous too. 
So okay, so Ben, I got, I got, I don't want because I know Mark is going to ask us to wrap soon, uh, and I want to give him a chance to ask the last question since I've been asking too many. But I, I can't help. I want to ask you now that you told us it won't be systemic in the emerging markets context, most likely. Should we? I mean, I was in a panic about Italy a year, year and a half ago, maybe even six months ago. I mean, their debt to GDP ratio just seemed to go steadily upwards. And yet everybody else seems to be like, oh no, all their problems have been solved. It doesn't matter that the tourism industry has been killed. It doesn't matter that the politicians are even nuttier than they were before. It doesn't matter that, you know, they're just borrowing even more at, and they—they've got to be systemic. If they don't, they oh, don't. Oh no, no, they I, take I'm, all I'm, of us are, you, are you are you calling Italy an emerging market? You you might have. What else are they? No, I, I, I look. Obviously, Italy could be systemic, but I'm talking about the, the countries in, in the EM that are like. I know, I know, but I was saying, are 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 you panicking about Italy, or are do you are you telling me that this modern monetary theory and no, all? No, I think other modern. Stuff? No, I think that's I think that's garbage. But I think people are under. You know, a spell has been woven by the ECB that people feel like the ECB has their back, maybe. Um, and but I agree with you; it, it's puzzling. It, it, it's it is puzzling, but I think it, that there's just this tremendous faith in the monetary authorities uh, that uh, that uh, you know the, the, since you know the Draghi whatever it takes moment that that's uh, that's been enough for people. It's so puzzling the, to me. I'm with you. It's it's somewhat puzzling because you you, you look at you, you look at really all the developed markets were at debt levels that I think ten or twenty years ago people would have said that would were, would would have been indicative of imminent catastrophe and trajectories that certainly would have been considered unsustainable and uh, people are okay with it. But um, there is there's a limit. So clearly, there's a limit somewhere, right? There must be a limit somewhere. Uh, it's just uh, people have pushed that limit out in their minds. So Ben, on our way out, can I can I ask you sort of along uh, a related topic about um, some of the sort of official sector new developments that have been accompanied by a lot of fanfare, sort of uh, attempting to address the fear of, um, if not a systemic. Uh, uh, threat from a particular country than just widespread sovereign default. So I'm thinking about DSSI, but especially maybe about the sort of G20 common framework for um, attempting to tackle sort of COVID-related debt distress. Do you have an opinion? Are these major developments? We've, we've gone back and forth with some of our guests, uh, uh, in part because I think Mitu and I have been skeptical of their significance and, and many of our guests have told us that we're wrong and that these are major developments. And um, what is your sense of these? Are, are, are these significant developments? Are they, have they passed beneath your radar screen? No, DSSI uh, certainly got people's attention. Um, uh, but I think very quickly, uh, the market figured out that uh, it was that it wasn't going to be, but they got the sense it was not going to be applied mandatorily to private sector creditors. Um, and so they sort of breathed a sigh of relief and said, okay, we can pretty much ignore this. The common framework though, I think in a way was a, was a response to the fact that the private sector skated on 
this initial VSSI um, proposal. And I think that's more of a concern. Um, you know, there's always been, uh, there have been periodic outbreaks of indignation on the, in the creditor community about this idea of comparability treatment, right? Going back to, I, I mean, I remember having this debate in, you know, in 1999 with respect to the first Ecuador uh, uh, default um, and, uh, you know, being indignant as creditor. Well, how, well, I don't understand how why is comparability treatment it only works one way. And, uh, uh, you know, how are we, uh, how are we supposed to be lending to countries when suddenly, uh, you know, the official sector decides to do restructuring and then we're pulled into it, we don't really get a say. And, and then people kind of forget about it. And I think that in a way, the common framework is, is like a reassertion. It's just sort of a reassertion or extension of comparability of treatment. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, that it's necessarily inappropriate to say that, that, that there needs to be some link between, uh, you know, when the official sector or bilateral creditors have to get relief and, and whether they need to ask uh, private, uh, the, the, they need to ask the issuer to, to look for relief from private creditors. I think that's, uh, that, that, that's probably fine, but what is problematic is if, if this is, becomes a backdoor way of creating like an SGRM, right? That the, that the, that suddenly the, the 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 you know that there's the Paris Club members go in a conference room somewhere and come out and say, well, this is the restructuring, and uh, and it's uh, it's going to have to be binding on everybody. That's uh, that's the fear that we have with respect to common framework. Um, but I do think the idea that you try and pull everybody in that there, I don't think there's a, an objection to that, and particularly now that you have China as a big creditor, particularly some of the low income. Uh, countries, uh, you know, uh, I think we private creditors would like to see them pulled in as well. So, well, so that's that. actually, that's one aspect of this. Do you feel like there sort of to what extent has the uncertainty uh, been reduced over how state-owned, Chinese state-owned entities are going to be treated? Do you, do you feel like the common framework has done anything to, to lend clarity there? No, not yet, except that it's gesturing to the idea that uh, they are going to be included at some point. So I think there was some fear that they, that, you know, they would never be included. We feel at least um, that, 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 uh, that issues on the agenda. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's, it, it's been a real treat and um, uh, we will hope fully channel the optimism from your predictions about the future, I guess. Uh, Me Too likes pessimism, but we'll, maybe there'll be a relatively good news that we can talk about if we can get you back on in a, at a six months or a year from now. Well, if, if, you, if you can't, and it's because I'm busy in six simultaneous <laughs> restructuring committees, then we'll know that my optimism was displaced. Well, thank you so much. This was a special treat. Uh, as we knew it would be, but it was even better than I could have imagined. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on.